You're listening to the Memphis MedCast, a podcast series from Memphis Medical Society. Find out more about our mission and services at mdmemphis.org. Hey, podcasters, I think you'll enjoy this presentation from Dr. Bindia Baga from Labonner. She talks about MISC, Kawasaki disease, and even touches on some of the latest updates on the COVID vaccine. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. It's a little long, but I think you'll enjoy it. It's quite informative. So check it out and stay tuned for more from us. I'm going to try to take you on the journey of uh, COVID pandemic uh, the way I see it uh, currently here from when it started. So with that, my objectives for this evening for us are to learn together to know the virus a little bit more, uh, epidemiology update, uh, some clinical features, and obviously focusing on MISC and uh, vaccine updates uh, if we do have time for that. But you can shut me off whenever, so I can talk a lot. So we'll um, go down the memory lane and uh, just do a timeline reminder to everybody that uh, December, although it seems like forever and a day, it's actually been six months and not forever and a day. Uh, you know, the days seem really long with this, but. Uh, December is when we first had the virus uh, case uh, as a human-to-human transmission recognized in Wuhan, um, in China. And 30th January was when uh, WHO declared the outbreak to be a public health emergency of international concern. And then 31st January was when US officials declared a novel coronavirus to be a public health emergency. Uh, 11th March is when WHO declared that COVID uh, virus disease was a pandemic of a very large proportion and we are still struggling with that uh, currently and we are um, we see the virus uh, not only in US but in more than 200 countries across the globe. So this is just to sort of show you the snapshot. Um, and then, you know, uh, I think how did it really start? It's always that mystery that puzzles, uh, you know, all of us ID folks, obviously, but I know everybody, all of us, uh, you know, physicians and even like my mom, everybody is wanting to know a little bit more about this virus. So I think uh, this uh, the slide that I had made when um, I got the chance to show you a little bit of this in my last talk when Sandy was also there, but just to remind everybody that this is a zoonotic virus that, uh, and we are an accidental but uh, host, uh, host that the virus has discovered a lot of love for it's just growing and spreading, but uh, nonetheless not uh, the actual preferred host in nature. So when coronavirus uh, you know, spread to humans, they actually need like an intermediate host and this cute little um, mammal here, uh, pangolin, is, uh, was thought to have been the intermediate host. Obviously nothing has been really established except we do know that this virus indeed is linked to uh, a bat. Um, and then uh, we do know that this is definitely zoonotic and it's uh, potentially coming from that live animal market which has thankfully been sh- closed on January 1st, 2020. So no more bat viruses from there. Virology 101, and I'm not alert um, on this one, but uh, bear with me because as you get to like look at papers or even just listen to the news, uh, you'll hear more and more about uh, vaccines. So I think it just at least helps all of us, uh, you know, answer some potential questions uh, when families ask us and look at the paper in a way uh, that is a little bit more scientific because I had to remind myself also of the structure. So just briefly, this is an enveloped RNA virus. 
And uh, the schematic uh, shows you, it's an adaptation from field virology textbook, but it's a nice depiction because it shows you the structure uh, or the spike protein, which is uh, the infamous spike protein. I don't know if you all have heard of it, but the S protein, and that's like the target for all, uh, a lot of the vaccine, um, you know, uh, and also for a lot of immunoglobulins or monoclonal antibodies, so to speak, that uh, are getting this, uh, to be like discovered and money is being invested on that rightfully so we do have the full genome sequencing and we do know that this is very much connected to the SARS virus um, uh, and to other bat viruses it's not exactly the same but it's uh, very much um, homogeneous to that virus uh, so it has that membrane which is the M protein and then it has these spike proteins which are kind of highly glycosylated and they are sort of coming out um, of the membrane. And then you have these other proteins which is the bilipid obviously envelope layer which is the E protein and then you have the nucleocapsid here and then you have the mRNA or of the virus that is actually within the nucleocapsid. And the membrane is derived with help from our cells, the host cells. And the black and white uh, picture uh, here shows you an actual electron microscopic view of the same uh, schematic that I showed you on the other side. And uh, the arrow points to, again, that uh, those spike proteins, which give it this famous name, it's almost like a crown sitting on its head. So it's certainly ruling over the world right now. Hopefully we can win. So, um, and then moving on just uh, briefly to the proposed pathogenesis, because then it's the natural next step for um, any of us, right? How is it actually going and where is it actually, I think I can slide more there. All right, so uh, the way it enters, the first step really is the binding. And this is the ACE2 receptor, which kind of lines our nasal epithelium and the airway tract all the way to the lungs. and uh, the virus, as you can see, the spike protein kind of binds to that and then is taken into the cell. This, this is the cell entry and the viral genome is released here and it takes the help of um, our cells and just makes a lot of uh, viruses. It just puts our cells to work, the cell apparatus, it makes a multitude of these proteins which then get assembled and make many, many new viruses like this. And then these viruses eventually come out of uh, the human cells by exocytosis. And they, they just kind of float around there and cause that inflammatory reaction. So uh, that's like the pathogenesis. I thought it was important to you know, start grasping at some of this also so that we can understand where the drugs and vaccines are coming from and maybe have a better understanding when we explain to our patients. This uh, is a little bit more of like disease progression slide. So the first one here, A, actually just goes, is exactly kind of what I told you. And um, another term here, this is really moving fast. So uh, the other term here is that uh, TMR SS2 receptor. And I think uh, there's other people on this call like Linda um, and everybody, you know, who've, potentially like kind of know uh, a lot more about this, but this is also like uh, one of those receptors which um, kind of this virus likes and gets attached to it. It's also lining um, our airway. And then, so as it enters, that's your first one. And then this B section or the figure right below that, you know, kind of shows you that the inflammation is, uh, when the progression is kind of also including a little bit of the alveoli, uh, alveolar capillaries, and this is a section of the alveol. And then when you look at C, then you can see the late stage COVID where 
because of the presence uh, of the virus and the replication, there's continued inflammatory response. And then the, you have the whole kind of cascade happening, which happens a lot more in adults. And that's why they can have this irreversible lung disease slash like, uh, you know, pulmonary fibrosis as healing and, uh, you know, um, but not as much in children that we have seen here in Memphis and uh, mostly across the world. We haven't really seen that much of late sequelae in children. But I think the important thing here to note is that it's not just a pulmonary disease, and that's the concept, uh, you know, really wanting to hit home. And we've heard this, but I think showing the figure helps because it's a pulmohematological endothelial inflammatory consequence, which is more than pulm just pulmonary, pulmonary disease. So a little bit different from, say, RSV or adeno or even flu in the lungs. So with that, you know, this is a, a nice figure um, borrowed from colleagues at Emory who are producing really good figures to this uh, to help uh, their students and learners learn. And I really like this one because it shows you how, uh, you know, to talk through when people ask us, well, the coronaviruses have been here forever. Why is this different? Well, it is because it, you know, these are the differences. We do have common cold coronaviruses, but this is different from SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is different from MERS and COVID-SARS-V um, also because it's more um, transmissible. And it's also, you, you do have more asymptomatic transmission in which way it's more common to the common cold coronavirus, which spreads easily, but it's more similar to MERS and uh, the SARS-CoV from before because it actually causes ARDS similar to them. To them. So it kind of is, uh, you know, best of both badness in a way or taking the bad points of um, both parents, so to speak, and being behaving like a perfect uh, bad child. I do have a teen, I hope he's not listening and thinking I'm making illusions. So. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about numbers, uh, epidemiology, and let's see where we are, right? The reported case counts, uh, and this has been so debated, and I know everybody is on different fences on how the reporting is done and where should it go to, uh, without going into uh, any political aspects of that. Uh, I think uh, the burden is still pretty significant, whichever way we look at it in our country and in the world. So I'm just gonna take you through some of that. So in pandemics, you know, it, um, I always tell our residents also, it's good to have a global perspective because, you know, we could get so lost in just our own, like, little, like, fighting, should we wear the mask, should we not wear the mask, and so, you know, so many other things that are ever in political, wear the mask, okay, tell people to wear it. <laughs> so uh, I think it's important to see what's actually happening in the globe, and uh, if you click right here, it takes you to this great um, interactive uh, podium, which is from Johns Hopkins, and it can just, you can just pretty much see where we are and where the world is, and again, it's, the data is as good as it's reported, right? So uh, there may be countries which are underreporting. So all that taken with a grain of salt, but still pretty significant, uh, you know, here. And really, if I click here, like, say, I, I'm kind of wondering about what's happening in India. And I clicked in South India, Pondicherry. I've been there, spelled wrong also, by the way, uh, where, which has had uh, 2,092 confirmed cases. And it may be more, but I can pretty much like go anywhere. And then I, if I click here, I'm in Illinois, US. So it's, uh, it can just give you that perspective and gives you like where we are, where the world is. And you can see here that we are, you know, we have not had uh, a lot of victory in terms of cases with this virus. 
So as of today, there have been 611,000 plus deaths globally, which is a lot, obviously, and then many, many more cases, and U.S. has 141,000 plus deaths as of this afternoon. So this uh, is again, uh, you know, a perspective slide uh, of our country, and this is taken from uh, the UT website, and this is like, you can access it live also, uh, and you can, you know, definitely look at it, but I want in the interest of time, I'm just gonna kind of tell you that this is uh, the data from today. Uh, this is actually from CDC, I'm sorry, this is the country perspective, and uh, you can see here, uh, that the way, the reason I wanted to point this out is to kind of like just point out as pediatricians that we are only seeing very little. Our adult colleagues are seeing way more, I think we all know this, but just a take-home point from this is that of all the reported cases in CDC so far, only about 6% or 6.5% of them have been in children. And uh, of those, zero to in the zero to four age group, it's only 1.5%, even though they are the sicker kids, but there's not that many. And then majority of cases uh, have been in the five to 17, but it's still a very, very minute portion of the whole, uh, if you look at the whole countrywide also. And then uh, similarly for deaths, for us, it's kind of good news because uh, the deaths have been less than 0.1% in uh, children. So just focusing on that part, uh, Really, it's not been, uh, kids have, you know, largely not bear the brunt of this when it comes to the actual disease itself. Uh, this was the other one I kind of got confused when I was talking about. This is uh, Shelby County and Tennessee data, and this is also, you could go live, but I took a picture of this to show you, and this is also from today. Um, and then uh, here, the cases that we have as of, this was last updated on July 19th, and this is the, uh, uh, you know, work done by, uh, you know, led by John and Dean and everybody, but this basically shows you the cases here. So we at Shelby County have had 16,000 plus and then the Tennessee total has been here and these are the number of deaths and everything. So this is also, um, I think the point uh, on this one, and if you go and look at this uh, website uh, detail later, this is open to public and I think uh, any of you can access it. It will show you that uh, they have like split by age and you can see that the cases are rising in uh, young adults here because they're not masking and uh, some of it is inevitable because they're going to work so they do have more exposure than they've had before uh, which may have not been prevented but uh, some of it is driven by not using masks so so this is the Lavonor uh, snapshot of our cases and this is uh, as of uh, july 17th uh, that we had tested 5,234 kids from Lavonor and including those that were in the AD and we had a total of 148 positive. 38 of those kids were, uh, 38 kids were admitted overall at Lavonor with a positive COVID test done at Lavonor. Two were admitted twice and 17 of these are asymptomatic and uh, some of you in the community may or may not be aware but we have uh, implemented universal screening at Lavonor so anybody who comes uh, to Lavonor uh, in terms of uh, patient gets screened whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic. Their isolation depends on whether they are a PUI, a person in, under investigation or not but the screening happens for everybody. Um, so that, that happened around May 16. So our data, we do have more positives since then, but not that many more. So even though we tested so many, we don't, we expected a little bit more positive, but we don't have that many more positives. 
the MISC um, KD uh, uh, reported that we've had, and we've been reporting it to the state since last month, and we had nine that are reported to the state and three that are being reviewed by the state. So we've seen our share of MISC cases also, or MISC, whatever you want to call it. So uh, taking you through a little bit of the details of the epidemiology after giving you that, uh, you know, uh, the top down view. Uh, this is the first uh, data that we had with, for children, and this was just MMWR weekly report, which did not have uh, a lot of uh, information. It was like a retrospective review when they, uh, because the disease was just sort of coming out, they did not have like the best databases then, and they didn't really, people did not give all the information and stuff. So it's incomplete, but what it did tell us was that of all the cases that they, that were reported to CDC during that time, all the way through April, which were coming mostly from the West Coast, as you know, about 1.7% of the lab confirmed cases occurred in children less than 18. The median age was 11 years, and uh, most of the cases, or 57% were in male, and about two thirds or one fourth of them close to had an underlying condition, which we know that underlying condition has been a big deal with the um, adults also, but in children also, they, that's kind of the first data that we had there. Less than, uh, the other thing here that we kind of got to know is that children less than one year accounted for the highest percentage. And this was a little bit different uh, from the data from China that we had uh, obtained earlier. So I kind of still like to show a little bit of that. The signs and symptoms of this illness in US uh, were reported as fever in this first uh, review and cough or shortness of breath, myalgia, runny nose, so just uh, all the usual like flu-like symptoms along with abdominal pain and diarrhea. And then uh, a very small minority of them developed worsening of illness during the second week of symptoms, which is thought to be more characteristic of adult COVID. Not that it can never happen with children, but not something that panned out to be really a big deal for us. Um, and then uh, the x-ray just depicts uh, to you that those multiple areas of consolidation and uh, bilateral infiltrates, the ground glass opacity, and uh, sort of the halo sign characteristically in ID world associated, uh, you know, kind of thought to be with the aspergillosis or fungal diseases. But uh, obviously now we know that COVID definitely can cause that. Um, the big thing to remember here is that the X-ray can also be normal and is not always indicated. Um, I think the second uh, study about epidemiology that I wanted to really sh uh, you know, share is one that came out from pediatrics recently. And this is, uh, I like this because this is looking at, uh, even though it's looking at one US children hospital system uh, in New York, it, they did do a really good job of collecting all data. So it, in terms of really uh, the grit of the study, it's pretty good. I think uh, this is uh, from a New York uh, children's hospital and they had 65 children during their peak time that they saw some of the take homes that I summarized for you uh, where that they, uh, I think the most important one and what I mentioned to in my resident talk yesterday also that uh, fever was common and seen in about 74% of cases. And even uh, you should also, uh, you know, the history of fever is as important as just having fever uh, in the office and uh, not that you can do that much about it, but if you have a suspicion of COVID then. Um, also, and for those of you who also admit, I think the other important thing that uh, they kind of saw was that for less, during the peak time, 
most of their kids or infants who were less than two months of age that were getting admitted to the hospital were admitted because of COVID. I thought that was pretty telling. So meaning that uh, these are, I think, some of the things that led to universal screening for us also, that it is really very common. To, if it is in the community, then the kids who are coming in, the infants, most likely if they have fever, they might have COVID, especially if they are less than uh, 60 days of uh, age. And uh, that's kind of what they saw. So the diagnostic and treatment consideration, uh, you know, sort of briefings or my uh, take home points on that for whatever, you know, my wisdom is worth on this. And these are things that are actively evolving. So if, when we talk uh, after uh, a couple of months, they I may have, you know, a little bit different uh, information on that. But as of what we know right now, uh, the best, uh, and this is something that won't change, the best uh, diagnostic test is going to be PCR. I don't think this will change at all. The best, uh, because we can't uh, grow this virus well, so I don't expect, and culture will take a long time and PCR will be the test to, uh, that'll be like the gold standard. Um, antigen, which is I know something that a lot of private practice offices are going to look at with the flu season uh, coming up to see if they can do some kind of triaging uh, to help with the isolation and uh, anticipatory guidance purposes. It's helpful, but I think my take is that a positive test is helpful and a negative is not going to be helpful. And uh, there may be false positives also. So I think more to come on that. Um, you know, I, I mean, I guess it's better than nothing. I would say it's 60 to 70 percent, depending on where you look at it. But uh, it's not. We know from our flu and uh, experience also, and from RSV experience also, that it takes a long time to perfect an antigen test, and uh, it's uh, we'll see. Is my uh, quote on that. Um, Serology for antibody, I think this is important. This is something that we need to keep looking at data because this is going to uh, give us a lot of information now. Uh, for office purposes, I really don't think this is something that you need to really worry about unless parents are insisting on wanting to know, like if they've had, um, like somebody had, uh, you know, if, you, if there's a family member who has COVID who's an adult and child is overall doing okay, and then the family really wants an antibody test uh, in, you know, a couple of weeks to see if their kid is, uh, you know, has this protection level or, uh, you know, whatever that immune correlate of protection from that, which we don't know what's the right number yet. But in case they ask you, then it might be something to consider. Um, I know that uh, people are already asking in the community whether they should get that, and then that gives them more, uh, confidence in sending their kids back to school or whatever that case might be. But don't ask me questions about back to school. Those will be tar. I'm just going to push them to Dr. Yuan if you do, because he can answer the school questions, Jason. All right. So um, the other thing about serology, I think it has a big role. Um, it does have a role in MISC, not in terms of like diagnosing MISC, because you will diagnose it based on clinical, or we will diagnose it based on clinical symptoms, and we would assume COVID uh, in the current scenario if we can't find anything else. But I think uh, that will help us understand MISC a little bit better, and uh, having a confidence serology in that setting is going to help us have a diagnostic closure of sorts on that case. Uh, eventually, I hope uh, that antibodies are going to provide us uh, on who is going to be susceptible and who's not going to be susceptible. It's going to be a good way to study uh, which vaccines are going to be effective and people are already sort of doing that. So there will be uh, much more to come on antibody. I feel like that's the test to watch for. 
for other the diagnostic and treatment consideration, I think uh, one thing that is sort of nice to know from a private practice perspective is that if you're suspecting COVID, then uh, you know, even if you're sending the patient home, then which you should, if they're fine, you, then acetaminophen would, should be your preferred, um, you know, antipyretic and uh, not uh, NSAIDs. Although if we do have to give NSAIDs, then uh, a lower dose is preferred. And this is because there were some toxicity profiles reported early on. They haven't really panned out as much, but that is sort of the WHO statement and uh, that it can potentiate a little bit more of uh, renal uh, side effects of COVID. So, uh, use acetaminophen whenever you can, but NSAIDs are not like absolutely never give it, but a lower dose if you really have to. Uh, ACE inhibitors you don't really use, but if you do have a child with metabolic syndrome that who is on it for blood pressure issues, then you can continue to use it unless there's other reasons to discontinue. Obviously, you know, question, if a child does have COVID, then it's, uh, or any virus, then it's, if the immunosuppression can be reduced, then it's always good to do that as tolerated, obviously in conjunction with uh, other people who are helping manage those medications. So other like pharmacotherapies uh, wise, I think uh, this uh, slide just takes you towards, uh, and that's why like uh, I wanted to spend some time on pathophysiology because uh, then you can really see what's, where people are targeting uh, the drugs and where are the therapies being given. So I'll just say a couple of things here that uh, the arrow that uh, is pointing to Rindisavir with RNA synthesis, that's the drug that's uh, really uh, has, uh, you know, has promise and that's the one that we are using. We have access to that. We've given it at Lavonar. Um, hydroxychloroquine, we can forget about it in this setting. And then uh, dexamethasone, that is something that uh, also has promise. And I know uh, Dr. Shah is listening in to this talk. So uh, especially in the ICU setting in the kids who are with ARDS, uh, in adults at least, that they've shown that uh, that has benefit. Um, so I think that is something that uh, we will continue to watch. The, the arm for the children in that study is not out yet, but uh, that is something that uh, has shown promise. The others are the anti-IL-6 uh, receptor, like the, all the inflammatory response that is created with the, this virus. So those are also like have some promise and the convalescent plasma, which protects the binding, as you can see, it just blocks the virus so it can't really go um, and attach to the respiratory epithelium. You can give, uh, we give that, or we have given it at Lavonar a couple of times for acute infections. Uh, so treatment uh, data that we have so far is from adults. My bottom line on that is kind of what I told you, is that uh, dexamethasone reduced the mortality in patients with COVID that needed ventilatory support or oxygen support of some kind, not in those on room air. And then preliminary results from uh, trial in uh, Rindisivir, this was from New England Journal, they showed that uh, it was superior to placebo in adults and we've used it in children. The data for children is mostly right now just uh, anecdotal cases, but not really um, a case control study, so. All right, this is just like a break slide uh, for us to uh, see if anyone has questions so far, but uh, also to reiterate that COVID is really not flu, not that you all not, don't know that, but I think this uh, speaks a lot that uh, if you just compare mortality wise, um, over almost the same period of time now, six months. It's um, kind of astonishing. All right. 
So uh, again, uh, this is just also a nerd alert slide to just uh, tell you that uh, COVID is not flow. If a patient starts that, and this also shows you the extra pulmonary tropism is much more than what you would expect uh, for usual respiratory virus. We don't expect flu to go and be found in the kidney, which we can find COVID in the kidney. We found COVID uh, virus in amniotic fluid. So it's kind of really out there and it goes to um, organs beyond the lungs. So why is it different in children? Um, I know that uh, I wasn't asked to speak on that, but this is a question that has puzzled me a long time and, and uh, that I have had to explain to my mom and to my son and everybody. So I think uh, this is really intriguing and uh, I just want to take um, a couple of minutes here to uh, you know, talk to you all about this. I think if this is a slide that uh, really speaks a lot to me because it uh, tells me that uh, even though I'm worried about the children in the community, when I look at uh, this, I can see easily that you know, even considering Missy, we still have, it's still very rare. The presentations in children, the children do overall much better than even the mildest uh, inpatient adults. So why is that? So a lot has, of thought has gone into that. I think uh, I'll uh, just say that uh, the ACE2 receptor that I talked to about is the one that has got the most fame in this. So children are really, um, if you look at my um, jumping ahead to this one, then it's like the ACE2 receptor expression is needed to, for this virus to go in, it has to be sort of active and it has to be uh, engaged with the things that are floating by in our uh, respiratory epithelium lining. But for children, they actually have less ACE2 expression, uh, which has protected them. So they really, their ACE2 uh, ex gene expression is not super active and it gets active uh, over age. So that's why as they get older, that's why the 18 year olds are getting a little bit sicker with the exposure, but the, you know, the younger ones maybe are not from respiratory standpoint, although they can have um, extra pulmonary manifestation uh, when they are really young. So that has been like one of the most uh, touted explanation. The other one really uh, goes to the fact that uh, adults have an immune system that is a little bit uh, different from children where their uh, inflammatory response is a little bit maladaptive. Uh, and I think uh, Dr. Shah, uh, you can jump in and speak to this at any point if you want to, but basically uh, the fact being that they, uh, they can have a little pro-inflammatory milieu uh, in terms of like being, uh, releasing uh, cytokines that are more destructive than children who can have cytokines that are not that destructive and there are actually immunomodulatory cytokines that can be released in children. So it might be more protective and that has been done to be the other reason. So with that, um, I'm gonna start uh, talking about the Missy update. I just wanna take a break here and see if anybody has a question. Have people fallen asleep? Are they still with me? I see some people awake. Any questions so far, if you all can talk? Hi, Dr. Bhagga. This is uh, Nitya Swaminathan. Uh, thank Nitya. you so much for the excellent talk so far. I had a question regarding the transmission. They say children are super spreaders. I just wanted to ask you the question, is that real and, and your take on that? So, you know, my take on that, um, I'm going to be a Dr. Fauci, even though I'm nowhere, not even a small F on his word, and say that we don't know. But from what I, my review of the literature, 
uh, I would say no. I don't expect the children to be super spreaders. As you can see here, they are not actually super infected also. When the incidence is so low in them, I don't expect them to spread it um, as much. And uh, I, although uh, you know, people take that with a grain of salt because once the school opens, schools open, then they may have more chances of infecting themselves. Uh, so that it might change a little bit. But the studies that I could not show actually um, are some from uh, European countries where they actually have opened the schools. And there are some also uh, just from uh, Chicago where they looked at household contacts uh, and uh, spread the children. And most of the kids they could find were actually getting infected from the adults and not vice versa. So I want to, I think in simple words, I don't expect them to be spreaders. Can this change when the literature is out uh, and uh, proves us wrong? It's possible. What I know right now, I would say no. Does that answer it? Yes, thank you. All right. Any other questions? Oh, you need a job, sure. All right. Was that a question? Okay, so Missy update. So what is Missy? It's a multi-inflammatory, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. So uh, this actually is really interesting. And this uh, slide uh, is from the Public Health uh, England. So this is uh, truly, uh, you know, very, this year in pandemic, we rely on collaborations and uh, learning from colleagues. And uh, this is actually, you know, slide that or data that they shared when they started seeing um, that after they had their peak, they started seeing that the, uh, they had these kids coming in with Kawasaki-like syndrome, but not quite Kawasaki, and they were really puzzled, and they couldn't really find uh, any other viruses, and some of them had these, um, uh, you know, they, all they had was that COVID, but they did not actually have a lot of respiratory symptoms necessarily, so they were really puzzled about what's going on, and they described this um, multi-inflammatory syndrome and thought that it was temporarily associated with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and it had a name change from PIMS to MISC, but the current name is MISC or MISI. Um, so this is, it follows uh, a one month lag or two weeks lag. Um, and this is uh, kind of what uh, they came up with originally, which you've seen, you can see we've held on to that. And uh, I just wanted to put it out there because I want to reiterate that we are learning from colleagues across the country. So um, it's, it's important to continue to be collaborative here. So I think uh, the important thing here is that while most, symptom, most children who do come in with, uh, when they come in with this multi-inflammatory syndromes, they may or may not have remember or recall, their parents may not recall the SARS-CoV-2 infection that they've had. We may have to just assume that. So right um, after that, you know, we, New York started seeing cases and we had uh, multiple webinars on uh, and a lot of uh, ID like lit search email uh, that went around which described uh, the New York cases which are very similar to the UK and Europe experience. And then uh, CDC came up with this definition again, uh, nicely put in this picture that it, this should be diagnosed and considered in a patient less than 21 years old with all of the following features. And uh, it's a kind of a loser criteria, but uh, uh, I think it's designed to not miss uh, a lot of cases, but fever for more than or equal to one day is what they said. And then hospitalized with involvement of more than or equal to uh, 
two of the following organs, renal, neurologic, respiratory, GI, dermatological, cardiology, and heme. So any symptom with any of these, um, or any sign with any of these organs, two or more, and then uh, evidence of inflammation. Um, and that had like the elevated CRP, ESR, IL-6, neutrophils, meaning that you would expect them to be lymphopenic and have uh, neutrophilia, the coaxial abnormalities and uh, low albumin and uh, not written here, but also added later on was low sodium. Um, so only uh, one of these lab values are needed. So you don't need to be all, uh, you know, positive, but uh, you, you would be typically if you have it, but uh, even with one, you should suspect it. Uh, with that, like you do need to have uh, no alternative possible uh, diagnosis. So you should be looking at other um, ID versus like rheumatological etiologies and panel. And then obviously the SARS-CoV-2 uh, positivity, which is an RT-PCR, a serology or antigen test, all are acceptable for uh, SARS-CoV-2 positivity, but really COVID-19 exposure. So they don't actually need to have the positive test to be considered or they you could send it and it can be negative and just the exposure counts, which is essentially like, I think uh, we don't know, it's potentially most kids in our community right now, uh, anybody could be exposed, we just don't know because there's so many asymptomatic adults also. So the differential diagnosis for this is um, obviously Kawasaki disease or Kawasaki shock syndrome, rickettsial infections, toxic shock syndrome, uh, with group A strep or staph aureus. And that's important when we are, are treating these kids and evaluating them in the ICU. When you guys see them in clinic, obviously this is important. Other bacterial infections or sepsis uh, with other organisms uh, mentioned there. And then just viral sepsis. It could be in um, enterovirus um, season. I was talking to a colleague uh, in Tampa last uh, two weeks ago and they are starting to also see enterovirus now and they, they can also come in with the sepsis-like syndrome viral. Uh, this is a season for other viruses also now. Um, and then myocarditis uh, could also be due to other viruses. And then lastly, the HLH uh, or macrophage activating syndrome, which could be part of COVID or it could just be isolated. And um, I see Dr. Myers also on the call. So she knows that a lot of things cause this and a lot of other rheumatological diagnosis for which, uh, which we don't have to go into. So for COVID uh, and uh, MSE in US, this is uh, I think the best uh, case study paper that's out for those of you who are uh, interested to look at it later. It's a case series uh, that came out of uh, Northeast five, six cases. But uh, we won't go into that because we have our own cases here, which are almost similar in number that I, I'll take you through a couple of those. Uh, but this is like, uh, if you, uh, you know, kind of get bored when I, when we go over some case details, I just have it summarized for you. So you can see the age range is one thing I want you to note, right? When we're talking about Kawasaki overlap, uh, look at the age. This is not what we would expect the age to be. If I'd shown you, uh, you know, if I'd seen Kawasaki, then I expect much younger kids. So the kids that we've seen, apart from one, um, who's a six month old and another that was three year old, most of them have been an, an 18 month old. A lot of these kids have been uh, older and uh, a lot of them have had uh, negative um, PCR and then serology was not available when we first started seeing some of these kids. So they were not uniformly done, but we've had a couple that were positive. 
two of the kids um, at Love Honor have not necessarily related to MSC, but have received convalescent plasma. And uh, two of our kids uh, have received remdesivir. Again, those are not necessarily MSC kids, but I wanted to, in the same slide, show you that we are giving this and we do have uh, you know, the capability to do these things as if needed, uh, because I know that parents are asking you guys. So um, the first patient that I'll take you through is one that um, I saw actually when, um, I'm gonna move this a little bit, sorry. The first patient uh, is, was an 11 year old female with past medical history of arthralgias who uh, had an asthma who presented with fever, abdominal pain, conjunctival injection and um, hypotension. She had this four day history of fever and right lower quadrant pain, one day history of vomiting and diarrhea. So nothing really uh, out of ordinary could have been just like a GI bug, but did have this history of a conjunctival injection on uh, recall. Um, so during the time when she had this uh, GI-like illness uh, and the pink eye, she called PCP and uh, some azithromycin was prescribed. Due to uh, some new symptoms of headache and neck pain and fever, the PCP then said, uh, go to the ED. That was kind of four days in. Uh, in the ED, she was hypotensive with the blood pressure of 69 over 38 and abdominal exam was suggestive of an acute abdomen. CT showed this, uh, she showed some uh, fluid collection also that we might expect that in just uh, a septic-like picture. This kid uh, kind of almost needed intubation, but mom was not really wanting that. So it was really on very high uh, non-invasive uh, support when I saw her and she was given some antibiotics and started on um, uh, just uh, management for sepsis and uh, COVID testing was also done and was negative. So these are the labs that when she first came in and uh, you can see the high CRP and uh, some tromsaminitis. So she does meet uh, some of those criteria that I just showed you, right? So I think most people who just saw the criteria would say that uh, she's uh, kind of meeting some of them. And uh, at that time, we didn't really have uh, a lot of those coming out. So we were just sort of learning about this uh, and we didn't really have a lot of uh, knowledge that we have right now. So in the pink here then, she also developed a rash. Uh, we changed some antibiotics around. Uh, I went and saw her, we wanted to do, we did another COVID testing and we first we thought maybe she has a lot of respiratory symptoms. So she may just actually have acute COVID and is actually negative, but her uh, inflammatory markers and her conjunctivitis did not make sense. And the rash kind of was overlapping with Kawasaki. So, you know, just um, got in touch and with, just reviewed the literature that was not that yet available, but looked at uh, the ideal itself and talked to, you know, colleagues and in cardiology also and, and in PICU. And we all felt like she meets criteria for Messi, even though the criteria had not really been uh, sent out by CDC then, but just even looking at European guidelines, we felt like she, made, she met that. Uh, but you can see that room was consulted. She, uh, surgery was consulted for acute abdomen nothing really panned out there. Her echo also was um, positive for some mild uh, pericardial effusion, suggesting inflammatory process, but she also had valvular dysfunction. We did not really see a coronary artery aneurysm, uh, but we echo was definitely abnormal. Uh, and she did, did have like some lung findings, which um, were uh, delectasis and pure effusion, but really thought to be mostly due to uh, overload of fluid and not really, um, uh, lung disease in particular. 
So eventually, like uh, day five, we ended up giving her um, IVIG and her fever subsided. She was weaned off presses and her respiratory status improved. I offered mom uh, COVID testing, serology, and she refused. And uh, at that point, uh, it wasn't that widely known. So really, uh, we, uh, I think Dr. Cross had her later on and we talked a lot about her, but uh, ended up we didn't do serology. Not that it would have changed anything, but it would have, um, if it was positive, it kind of would have nailed it because it was our uh, first potential messy case. The second kid, uh, was this 12 year old who had no significant past medical history, who had uh, this fever, cough and malaise and was kind of just hanging out and not really doing that bad, but not really feeling that good, decreased appetite, vomiting, and then had some dizziness. The interesting thing about this one was this kid was actually diagnosed with COVID at the end of April, four weeks prior, and was quarantined at home for two weeks um, by the health department. So when fever returned, uh, they were seen at the minor med and just diagnosed with acute viral illness. When it persisted and she developed a rash, she was brought to the ED by mom. And then uh, the fever and decreased appetite. This is the review of system here for you. As you can see, she met some of the uh, criteria when it came to symptom. She was also, COVID testing was done again and she was negative also met the lab criteria. You can see it there, the high D-dimer, fibrinogen, high CRP, low sodium, and the lymphopenia. The hospital course for this one, uh, again, started uh, on antibiotics and then two days after admission because of worsening, uh, ended up going also to the PICU. They evaluate, ID service evaluated for everything else. For this one, the ECHO and EKG were normal, but did have a high BNP, did have um, a higher uh, end troponin, which trended eventually. And then uh, this patient ended up also getting uh, IVIG and uh, really improved to that. But then because the temperatures uh, came back again, methyltred was also given and she improved. COVID serology was not positive uh, in the hospital, but a follow-up was done in this child and uh, was positive at follow-up. So I'll take you through some of the literature that we have for um, uh, this particular condition. And I think to understand whether this is, and we have cardiology friends also on the call. So uh, just a little bit on what, how different is this from Kawasaki disease and Kawasaki shock and uh, toxic shock, just looking at the data for that uh, for you guys. So this Lancet article uh, actually compared uh, this Kawasaki disease-like illness, and this is from Italy, when they started seeing a burst of cases that came in with this uh, Messi slash Kawasaki disease-like illness, they went back and looked at the patient uh, and the clinical demographics and the clinical characteristics of these patients versus the character, the you know, uh, retrospective um, Kawasaki disease cases that they had had in their hospitals for over the years, and uh, they kind of came up with the comparison. And this is what they found uh, in a nutshell, like if you don't want to look at all those boxes, you can look at the blue on the top and just kind of take the bottom line that kids with um, this Kawasaki disease-like syndrome were different from the typical Kawasaki in the sense that they were older. They had higher um, ferritin. They had uh, more abnormal echo beyond the coronary artery aneurysm. They had uh, lower platelets, which is uh, which we do sometimes see with Kawasaki uh, and Kawasaki shock, and especially in younger kids, but we don't typically see that 
in Kawasaki, we actually see more of thrombocytosis. They also had lower WBCs, which is very uh, also uncharacteristic of Kawasaki, where we see higher WBCs. So how does this happen? This is again a great question, and I'm sure like um, somebody somewhere is looking at this uh, and uh, trying to will tell us in a couple of uh, you know maybe a year or two a great paper will come out on it and really. Uh, right now, there's a lot of speculations. We know that this is a temporal association. We know that a lot of uh, viral triggers can release this cascade of inflammatory response, which can have a time lag. And uh, given the right genetic predisposition, that all kids who get COVID or all will not develop MISI, but a portion of them who are susceptible might get it, where the immune system kind of get roofs over them. We also know that. For Kawasaki disease, not all kids who get uh, viral triggers end up getting Kawasaki disease. So there is definitely a genetic predisposition to these um, disease characteristics. And uh, so this is the same pattern, except this is behaving a little bit differently from Kawasaki. So this then looks uh, or shows you the data. And I think it's important uh, to show that uh, to my physician friends, because so that you don't just take what I say at face value, but you're actually looking at the graphs yourself. And then you have it uh, summarized there uh, that uh, when you look at this, uh, they, are, they called it PIMS, but it's the same thing, it's the MISI. Um, and the Kawasaki disease, Kawasaki disease shock and the traditional toxic shock groups that they compared in their hospital, uh, what they found was that uh, the MISI kids obviously were older and the average age of Kawasaki was 2.7 years, which I think is what we would agree also. When you look at this, which looks at the lab uh, value differences, again, uh, I think you can see here that uh, the cytopenia, lymphopenia, anemia, and thrombocytopenia, in some ways, in all, in all of those, the MISIS is more comparable actually to either Kawasaki disease shock or toxic shock, and not really, that's why it's confusing, and those are not characteristic of Kawasaki disease, but they're more characteristic of toxic shock. Um, and that's, um, that's why the initial confusion on whether it's for bacterial or not. And that's why some of these kids end up getting bacterial uh, therapy and they should also be evaluated for bacterial pathogens. All right, and this looks at inflammatory markers. Uh, so here you have the CRP ferritin D-dimer and how you can see how it is also different uh, when you compare these and you can see uh, how uh, the labs are a little bit out of proportion, especially the ferritin, like I told you before, and D-dimer is one also, which is characteristically uh, different for this also. This looks at um, the troponin and the BNP elevation and how uh, it is uh, uh, way out of proportion when you compare it to Kawasaki disease and Kawasaki disease shock. And um, I think uh, that can be in the presence or absence of echo findings. And I showed that to you in one of our cases. That's why I picked that case for my cardiology friends here that even though the echo is um, you know, normal, like for me as a hospitalist, I may not always think of ordering it. We go by echo, we don't necessarily get BNP and troponin for all kids that come in with Kawasaki. So it's, uh, it was an important thing for me to sort of consider uh, and change sort of my uh, behavior and learning process and treating process for this. So I think the bottom line for this uh, in terms of literature review thus far is that admit labs and other parameters like age are discordant between the new COVID-19 induced syndrome and both regular Kawasaki disease and Kawasaki disease shock cases and can be more similar to toxic shock. 
Um, and again, the higher age of presentation, predominance of GI symptoms, uh, low platelets, increased D-dimers, and hypotensive shock. But they may are similar to Kawasaki uh, disease shock or to toxic shock, but they may have the rash, the conjunctivitis, and the cardiac findings and other overlapping features of Kawasaki disease. So what do we do with this? Um, so this uh, picture is, uh, this slide uh, is, uh, you know, from a friend that I've modified. Uh, she's in Big Forest right now, Casey Ramirez. I think a lot of you know her. Um, so this is something that they have come up uh, with, and I think it's very similar to what uh, we are doing in our hospitals. So I've modified this a little bit to our, uh, our hospital guidelines, but basically, uh, these are the labs that we would be sending for any kid with these symptoms and fever. And while we are evaluating for etiologies that are including COVID, but not just COVID. So you have blood culture written there, you have UA and uh, urine culture written there. So we are, and you know, in thick one season that we are, which is now, now, or any season potentially, except like uh, uh, if it's really cold. But um, we would also, we don't evaluate for tick bonds, so we, I didn't put that here, but we might empirically start them on toxic because it's hard uh, to rule that out for us. Supportive care and IVIG uh, was sort of uh, what we considered as the mainstay sort of for us as first line. Uh, but there are more guidelines now from the Rheumatological Society and AAP, which I'll share in just a minute. But this is the, these are the antibiotics that we would uh, start them on empirically. If they come to ED and they're in the PICU and I get a consult, then that's kind of what I would say. Vankin, uh, ceftriaxone, meropenem if there's abdominal pathology and uh, doxycycline. So what do you do in the outpatient, right, is what you want to know. So um, it's tricky because uh, if they're, you know, you have this potential ticking time bomb that they could get really worse, but they look okay. So what do you actually do? So I think this is uh, something that uh, you might consider, like if they have fever and they have um, for more than or equal to three days, plus at least some of these symptoms, then, uh, but they actually look, say they have fever and they have headache and red eyes and uh, cervical uh, lymphadenopathy, but they're actually looking well and uh, you're not really sure, then it's good to do some initial lab workup, I think, if you have a quick turnaround. And those labs might include CBC, CMP, ESR, and CRP. And if they are uh, abnormal, meaning if any of those are abnormal, so uh, it's not that they all have to be abnormal, so the only uh, way to send those kids uh, home or not like do more about it would be if the CRP was normal, ESR was normal, if the absolute lymphocyte count was more than 1,000, which is normal, and platelets were more than 150. Uh, in that situation, then you could uh, have them on close follow-up uh, if you are uh, confident, and uh, that would be within, see them within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, um, you could also, if any of those labs are abnormal, then they can be evaluated in the ED, or you could also call us uh, to discuss the case if it's confusing. So. so the vast majority of children, this is the AP guidelines came out, or like, it's not guidelines, it's just statements actually, which, uh, you know, I just wanted to summarize some of these for you. Uh, as uh, you have talking points with families. So I think uh, the big uh, takeaway from this was that vast majority of children with COVID-19 will have mild symptoms and have excellent outcomes. And that still holds true. Uh, only two to 
5% of uh, the COVID cases in our country have uh, are reported to be in children and really 0.1% death, just to go take you back to the first slide. And really in other parts of the world also, it's all less than 5% of cases have been in children and uh, mortality has really been quite low. Uh, yes, there is messy, but it is rare also. Uh, but not that we don't have to consider that, but it is rare. So this is the time uh, in our hospital that we would be seeing Messi and with cases still ongoing, with us still being in uh, the midst of a, you know, kind of a pandemic and surge, uh, so to speak, uh, within our community with the sort of rising slash plateaued cases, uh, as you look, depending on one day versus the other, certainly not declining. We still may have kids coming in that could have been infected last month and are asymptomatic. So this is the time when we would definitely be seeing these kids um, in, uh, you would be seeing them in the hospital, we, uh, in your uh, clinics and we would be seeing them in the hospital. This is um, a guideline that uh, came out uh, from Rheumatological uh, Room Society. And this is, uh, which had input from ID, from critical care, from hospitalist group uh, and from hematology group. So, uh, robust, but uh, really uh, needs a more um, needs more like dosing and other things. So can they are working on improving it? But basically, they compared and contrasted the features of uh, Missy and Kawasaki for us again. And uh, I think uh, we went over uh, most of them. But I wanted to point out here that traditionally uh, we don't uh, have this, uh, you know, um, African or Afro-Caribbean or Hispanic descent predisposition for uh, traditional Kawasaki. But here there's more increased incidence in those communities. So that is something to be mindful of, uh, you know, as we take care of these kids. And then patients with MISI have more prominent GI and they also felt neurological symptoms. So I bring that because that's a little bit different from uh, the data that I showed you from uh, European literature that uh, they kind of want us to also consider when they have neurological symptoms uh, uh, very strongly in MISI. And then present more frequently in shock than you would with Kawasaki, more likely to display cardiac function uh, uh, dysfunction, which is also something that I didn't really, uh, that would have not registered for me if I didn't read these guidelines carefully, that they can have arrhythmias and ventricular dysfunction uh, with, uh, you know, without, which may not be obvious. And that's not something we uh, see with Kawasaki. That's certainly not the arrhythmias. The ventricular dysfunction, yes. Um, all right. And I think uh, the other thing is that even without the features of Kawasaki disease, so if they don't have the pink eye, the, um, you know, the red neck, and they don't meet the Kawasaki disease criteria, they can still have an abnormal echo with coronary artery aneurysm. And I think that was also interesting. They don't have to have features of Kawasaki to have that inflammation that is in their um, arteries. The approach uh, is multidisciplinary, like I said, and uh, you know, the, the IVIG and steroids are the ones, and then uh, biologics, this is from the AAP statements. Um, they say like you should have a stepwise approach and that's kind of what the room statement also say. And whenever we start these, we try to give them a taper after that. But at that point, everybody should be involved. Hame consultation is another thing that they want us to do because they can have high D-dimer, like I uh, told you earlier. Um, the cardiac management of uh, Missy, you know, I've uh, 
you know, that was really interesting to me. The cardiac management is a little bit different than I would expect for Kawasaki. They also, other than the BNP and troponin trends that I mentioned earlier, they also want us to do EKGs, um, you know, serially while the patient is at least in the hospital. Um, and they don't really have any recommendations for outpatient, but that might come up that they may ask uh, us to like, uh, and if it does, then we can certainly disseminate that. But as of now, like for every uh, patient with Missy, that they want uh, us to uh, do EKGs because of those arrhythmias that might be uh, go unnoticed. And then they have this um, echo plan, which is very similar to Kawasaki disease echoes. But uh, cardiac MRI is another thing that uh, they want uh, us to do if there's significant LV dysfunction in the acute um, MS. And then cardiac CT, if you can't see the distal uh, coronary artery well, is the other thing that they mentioned. Uh, this is again just uh, from the room guidelines, which is very similar to uh, the AAP guidelines. So we don't really have to go over that. Um, the other different thing from Kawasaki uh, recommendations for this is that there really is a stronger heme involvement. Uh, we don't really see that with the, when we manage Kawasaki disease cases and really not in toxic shock um, syndrome cases also. They may have uh, that DIC-like picture, but they don't always need uh, treatment for that. And um, I'm not speaking as an expert on that particular field, but uh, just speaking from consults on that. But here they are really a little bit strongly uh, mentioning that. They also do not talk about not giving the high-dose aspirin, like they don't mention high-dose aspirin, which you would give with Kawasaki. Uh, they would give only the low-dose aspirin and they would only give it if you have um, a platelet count that uh, would tolerate that. So they want you to avoid aspirin, as to avoid aspirin if platelets are less than or equal to 80,000. Um, and then uh, the other thing they mentioned, which was interesting, but if uh, the coronary artery is above a certain range, then they want uh, us to give aspirin plus also anticoagulate, which is also different from Kawasaki guidelines. So this is a break slide and for to see if you have any questions on Missy, but um, SARS-CoV-2 likes surfaces. Important fact, it can stay in plastic or stainless steel for two to three days. Any questions on Missy, friends? You're there? No questions? You explained to Myers. Surely you have something to say. Actually, I was going to say something. Yes. Um, um, what, you know, you went over the reasons why um, they think children don't have as much trouble with COVID in general as adults. And I was going to mention, and you may have heard, I've heard a discussion about the involvement of the thymus too, that children have a thymus and adults don't. And there's one school of thought that there's a T cell dysregulation in this yes. and that if you have a thymus, you can put out more T cells and do better. So I just thought I'd mention that. I don't know that that's proven and it's sort of theory, but it's just yeah. sort of an interesting thought for why children yeah. seem to do better. Yeah, I yeah I've read it. It just didn't pan out into a paper, so I didn't I didn't bring it up. But I think that's interesting. Yeah, Dr. Um, Bhaka, I had a question. Um, yes. 
And this was regarding how children, um, are the children who have um, MISC, are they actively able to transmit the virus? Because typically they are the ones, they're having an immune reaction after several weeks. So are they similar to active COVID infection or how do they transmit the virus or do they even transmit the virus during that phase? I would not expect them to transmit the virus. Um, a lot of them could be COVID negative and uh, it's more immune mediated. So they would have had uh, COVID infection in the past. So even if their virus is detectable, people say that it's more um, just inactive uh, pickup of the virus because just because the PCR is super sensitive. They're not thought to have acute COVID, uh, ongoing COVID infections. There's a lag time of two to four weeks, people think, okay. been getting it. So I do not expect them to be transmitting the virus. Great, thank you. Thanks. Vindya, um, this is Samir. Um, Hi, Samir. I just had a, a quick comment, maybe, and a question. Um, so um, there is no absolute test um, to differentiate MISC from some of the other uh, potential differential diagnoses, I guess, just like there is no absolute test for Kawasaki disease as well. Um, in your opinion, uh, uh, and, and from literature, what is the response to uh, IVIG and the supportive therapy in MISC? Would, would lack of therapy almost rule out MISC in uh, some of these other uh, differential diagnoses patients? That's a great question, uh, Samir. I think uh, in our, uh, I guess anecdotally, just looking at uh, the Bonner uh, sort of uh, response, I think here we, we've had really good success with IVIG for the most part. Uh, one of our kids needed IVIG plus um, Anakindra, I think, and one needed IVIG and steroids, the one that I showed you. But uh, overall, I would say that most kids, even in the literature, have responded to IVIG. That has been the first line. They've often not required second line of therapy. I do agree with you that once we've gone down that step down approach, then we should be, if, and we haven't find a bacterial pathogen, which we should have been looking at in parallel, then obviously other conditions need to also be um, explored. So uh, I guess the short answer is I expect them to have good resolution to uh, the proposed therapies. Thanks. All right, so I think I'll just move on. Uh, and uh, how am I on time, Emily? People bored? Maybe. I want to talk a little bit about vaccines really quickly. Okay, we'll, if you can leave anyway. If anyone leaves, it's not going to hurt my feelings, but I can share some vaccine slides. We're all friends here, it's okay. So, um, I think the vaccines, uh, it's important to just be a little bit updated on vaccines and you all may have read some of these uh, studies already, but uh, there's a couple of papers that I wanted to uh, refer you to and just get you up to speed because there's been exciting uh, information that's come out. Um, so as I started with all that, uh, not the gloomy slides, but at least with showing you that whole worldview of um, how much COVID we are having, I wanted to end with some hope uh, on the horizon that uh, we, there are more than 120 vaccine, uh, vaccines that are being developed globally, according to WHO. 
according to Dr. Fauci, and uh, I am a self-proclaimed Fauci fan, not gonna hide that. So a um, number of months before uh, doctor, you know, the COVID vaccine should, could be ready is uh, six. So he doesn't say should, he says good. And I think that's the important uh, factor to remember that uh, no one really knows, but it's possible. And that'll be the first time in the history of uh, ID and vaccinology that a vaccine might be ready within six months uh, of uh, the genome being uh, sequenced. So that would be a miracle if it's ready this, uh, in six months. Um, 319 million is the other number uh, to remember. That is the minimum cost of getting a single vaccine to the large uh, scale testing stage, according to the estimate published by Lancet. Uh, this uh, schematic is just to show you different vaccine types. And again, uh, just uh, this is not going to be a vaccine uh, lecture, but I think it's important to just sort of uh, see that, get reminded that live attenuated and whole um, inactivated the RNA and DNA um, recombinant uh, subunits and the recombinant viral vector vaccine where you take the help of another uh, virus, which is supposed to be uh, harmless, to the human body and use that to trick the immune system by, it's sort of like riding on a horse and going in like a Trojan. So um, that is another, uh, that's the Oxford uh, vaccine that's come out. So this is uh, just a timeline to tell you that yes, uh, uh, we do have, uh, it's easy to get impatient with uh, you know what's coming out of science, but also recognizing that there's things are really going at full, Feed ahead. And even if we just look at uh, treatment, like even from May when I start, first started giving uh, talks to our residents and sort of started uh, looking at all this, between even May to now, like we have easy access to remdesivir, we actually can enroll people with convalescent to get convalescent plasma, and there's uh, um, you know other stuff that are more that are more easily accessible. We've gone from having difficulty in accessing tests in the hospital to now like universal testing. And I know that some of you are still struggling with testing in the community, but I think we've come a long way in that. And uh, this just takes you towards multiple steps that you can see uh, that are needed before we can see a vaccine is safe to be delivered. Uh, and during the time of emergency, there's that arrows there point to the combined phases where people can actually come up creatively to combine phase one and two um, and then uh, walk where the government can just claim that these are the five vaccines that I really believe in and just give them money up front um, on that. So the two vaccines that uh, I feel are the ones to watch for would be, um, that I would bet on, would be one that is coming out of uh, uh, US Moderna and NIAID. This is an mRNA vaccine. And this um, actually, as you know, pointed out here in uh, uh, my slide, on January 10th, the genome was sequenced and within 45 days, actually, they had the vaccine ready uh, based on prior experiences on other uh, viruses that they were doing. So they were um, able to sort of uh, make this vaccine in the mice model and then quickly just start uh, the trial and, and started vaccinating on March 16th. So that's really a very short time. And uh, this uh, phase one study, which was dose escalation study, which is the first phase in which they give the vaccine in um, escalating doses uh, to different age groups of patients. And again, all adults here, but still they've given to 15, uh, 
45 healthy adults between 18 and 35 were enrolled and 15 each in each group given these uh, incremental doses. Uh, and all developed immune robust response. And then some of them got boosters and they also had a good response. So the adverse effects that they saw were with the highest dose group and after the second vaccine. So this is very encouraging. They also looked at immunogenicity. They looked at safety, but they also looked at immunogenicity and they looked at serum neutralizing activity. And they found that after the second vaccination, that uh, the values were similar to those in the upper half of the distribution of a panel of controlled convalescent serum specimen. Meaning that if, a patient, if somebody in the community has had COVID and has given their serum to donate to the convalescent serum because they have high antibodies, that's the level that this vaccinated patient or a vaccinated subject in this study after the second vaccine had. So that's pretty reassuring. The second one is this um, one that came out um, yesterday. The study was published in Lancet, and this is a viral vector vaccine. This is uh, uh, really, uh, I recommend you to read about this uh, study and Dr. Gilbert, who uh, is uh, working in a general lab at uh, University of Oxford, had been working on Ebola and um, SARS vaccine for years. And when WHO sent out this uh, call for vaccines, her lab actually just kind of acted on it really quickly and they actually were really quick and they went and did this phase one and two single blinded study which they've actually RCT which they have completed and what they showed that uh, they had acceptable safety profile and they had um, homologous boosting increased antibody responses so basically both humoral and cellular, both immunity for them. So they have started, um, or they ha actually already have a phase three program ongoing. So that is the other vaccine to watch. The virus uh, that she used as a vector was the chimp adenovirus. So it uh, causes a common cold in chimpanzees. So I think with that, I just want to summarize and say that uh, a few take-home points. Uh, I think uh, what we saw together, and which some of you already knew, is uh, that uh, obviously the pandemic is very much ongoing. Hopefully seeing the numbers and seeing the perspectives uh, globally gave some insight and seeing that what's actually happening at Mabana in our community gave a little bit more insight. We are still learning, but, uh, and I know it's very difficult easy to get frustrated and I've been super frustrated, but I think what's important is also to remember that we know way more today about this virus than we did a few months ago. I know that as an ID doctor, I have a lot more confidence talking to the families and I have a lot more uh, confidence telling Dr. Shah what I think uh, we could be doing, how I can arrange medications if he needs something. If you call me from the community, I have a better understanding um, based on the literature I have today about what to tell you than I had about three months ago. Uh, we have promising therapies. Uh, I think the other good point is that vast majority of the kids do well with COVID. Uh, Missy is real and uh, it can be serious, but it's also rare and uh, not, uh, and it's also most kids do well with Missy. In our hospital and uh, across the country, most kids have recovered. There have been a few deaths, but uh, for the most part, they have recovered. There are also promising vaccine results, so hope is on the horizon. And I think uh, collaboration, research, and adaptability is key to overcoming this pandemic. I think these are my references. And with that, I'm going to see if you all have any more questions for me. 
Yeah, Bindia, this is Andrew. Um, I've got a question and I got dropped twice, so you might have already addressed this. Um, tell me what you think about the, the MMR and the protective uh, features of MMR potentially. MMR in the context of uh, uh, it, well, for COVID? Right, yeah. Um, I, I've, uh, I read something I cannot remember where, mm -hmm. a couple of sources that had said that um, potentially administering a third dose of MMR can protect, protect or help protect against the, um, uh, the respiratory um, problems uh, in particular. So I, I don't know that I, you know, I kind of buy into that, uh, to be honest. Uh, I think it's uh, speaking as a virologist, which I was in my first life as an ID attending. Uh, the, it's a paramyxovirus, so it's a little bit different from coronavirus. So I think we are jumping uh, genuses there. So I, I would be very skeptical of that. Um, I think some people have talked about BCG, which is uh, also, I don't know if any of you have read that, uh, uh, that interest in boosting the T cell response from that end, but not in terms of like, uh, and that also hasn't really panned out. So uh, I, as of this moment, I really don't know that I know the data to support that as, uh, an extra dose of MMR would help. But if anybody knows, please chime in and correct me. Mindya, this is Samir. Uh, I think the one important takeaway out here is uh, the possibility of, um, you know, um, influenza infections and um, yes. how much havoc uh, that, con that can actually, uh, you know, create. And uh, moving forwards, I think it becomes even more important that all our patients get immunized uh, for yes. the flu. Absolutely. No, I agree with you, Samir. Um, you know, I Maybe even wearing masks, the influenza season may look different also. I think there's just a lot of unknowns, right? It could be um, a lot worse. It could also not be, I don't know. But I think uh, immunizations are the key, obviously, to prevent that, so. Other questions? Thank great talk, thank you. Thank you. We good? I've got one actually. It's one that I've been asked. It's not necessarily a medical question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, a lot of people are asking me with the news of the vaccine, uh, how we think or if there's any history to tell us how we prioritize who gets it first. It's a great question. And I think um, there's many articles to that addressing ethics of vaccination, right? Um, I do I have, I don't know, you know, Clint, that's a great question. I think it might depend on the studies that come out that tell us who tolerated the best. Uh, the studies that they have, like the phase twos, were all done on healthy adults between 18 to 55. You know, whether they necessarily need it or, I mean, they do, but do the nurse, people in the nursing home need it more, right? I guess that's the question, right? So I don't know. Uh, I'm hoping that if they do give it to um, those who are more vulnerable, then they actually have safety studies before they give it. You know, um, I know that I would be giving it to my mom uh, if there is at least one safety or efficacy study that says that it's not, you know, super harmful in that patient population versus like just avoiding. So 
I, I don't know. I think the right answer to that. I think the, we would want it to be prioritized to those that are the most vulnerable, but not at the cost of not having any um, efficacy and uh, safety data on them. Right. Well, the person, one of the people that asked me was an elected official, and I said, well, I hope it's not you that's deciding what order um, we give a vaccine in. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I bet, like, the healthcare providers probably will, you know, we, we may end up, like, having to get vaccinated, <laughs> you know, because yeah, depending on exposure, right? So I don't know how they will mandate it. They may just mandate, um, you know, all the healthcare providers also. When I say mandate, it may be just if I'm at UT, I need to have a flu vaccine to work. That's the mandate, not being politically. Nothing's mandated from the top. I didn't say that. What else? Dr. Bhagga, I had a question about um, return to school. I know you mentioned in the beginning that you may not answer those questions. I don't know if I should ask it yet, or is there a different forum for that? you can ask me anything okay awesome. know, but we can discuss it awesome. okay yeah, i can pass it on to somebody awesome. who's working on it but um yeah so dr arnold and um Highsmith, uh, and jason is on i don't know if he's still on the call jason are you there still i'm here and i think cynthia is still on i think cynthia yeah, ask the question Awesome, awesome. So the question I had is some of our patients will ask, oh, what, what do you think are the risks of sending, the, sending my child back to school? Or even like just a general question, other friends, colleagues, even us um, have this question in mind. So I was just wondering if there is any sort of a scorecard or anything that sort of has a bunch of questions that assesses the risk level of each household and the child and the people along with the child lives. For example, is there something like chronic illnesses in the child, any presence of proximity with older people at home? What are the local community rates? Is there the, is the local community compliant with wearing masks and social distancing? And what is the local curve? And, and is it better that younger kids who potentially are not going to be compliant with masks and social distancing do virtual learning from home, as opposed to older kids who will potentially follow instructions and overall assessing the mental health of the child if they are just otherwise happy even at home. So is there like a scorecard or something that we can counsel for <laughs> not just families, but also for colleagues and friends and ourselves and just sort of like come to a more sane conclusion of what should we do? I, I can, yeah. Are you going for it, Jason? Or oh, sure. <laughs> I can start and you and and Cynthia can fill in. I mean, I, no, there's nothing like that that exists, unfortunately. I think that's a great idea. We should create an app that asks all those questions and you can uh, answer them all and then get a green light or a red light <laughs> as to whether or not you should, you should go. But yeah, I think you have to answer all those questions individually for the family situation and, and for the child, you know. I think the way I've been counseling parents is, um, you know, as of now, as of today, that we should try to have children in school if possible. Um, but the ones with, um, for instance, sickle cell disease, severe asthma, um, you know, other chronic conditions, especially kids on, you know, immunosuppressants or uh, with weakened immune systems for whatever, that those, those kids may 
stay home. As Bindia mentioned earlier, I think I'm very encouraged by the study out of South Korea that, you know, showed, um, especially the younger children, zero to 10, um, are really not transmitting um, and uh, are not really a source of infection. So I think for the younger kids, I, I, I feel actually more comfortable with, with them, I think, even though they might may not be as compliant with the social distancing and the masking. Um, but as you said, you have to take into account, you know, who else is in the home? What is the uh, social emotional uh, state of the child? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot to, it's a lot to account for and a lot to, to take in to, to decide. Um, and I think, you know, I, I just feel like our role is helping families kind of walk through that and then um, supporting them with whatever decision they, they feel like they make and what works best for their family. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help. I think there's a lot more to come on the school, right, Jason? Yeah, I think, I know the school, obviously the schools have all released sort of some plans, but I, yeah, I, I would expect some more guidance and, um, you know, as the, as you said, the local situation may dictate a lot of that, depending on what happens over the next few weeks. Yeah. I think hopefully, like, if you're just looking at uh, the data, you can see that the kids don't really, they do okay for the most part. So, you know, I think for me, like that's the most reassuring part that uh, the ones who are older, the disease gets more severe in between like after 17. So the older kids are the one that were getting, transmitting it a little bit more also, and also getting more sick with it. And the younger kids, unless they're uh, infants, then uh, who cannot handle the virus, any virus well, they come in, but uh, for the most part, they. Are actually doing okay so great yeah, thank you so much thing. i think the tough thing is that we're up against Ms. Hi, hey how are you can you hear yeah. me okay so i think one thing we're up against are the myths and the misinformation that's circulating in the community so even though we have i think pretty good data it's not always embraced by the folks who really need to hear it and um I think we're seeing some of that. We still have, I think, a good bit of information to process through and get to the schools. The other problem uh, is that there are multiple school systems, school districts, if you will, and uh, some folks want to do things a little bit differently, and then some have better resources than others, and, and that's a problem too. And then that has to be balanced against the fact that many kids from underserved areas really need to get back to school, but those are the same kids who come from multi-generational homes that may have adult caregivers with chronic illnesses. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. I was telling Samir today that uh, my son has to uh, go to college and I mean, has to, but I don't think he will. <laughs> He'll probably do virtual learning. We are still waiting to hear from Washu also. So. But most of his friends, even Rhodes has closed uh, campus. They are not going to have any kids uh, on campus at all. So it's not an easy decision. But I guess that, I think uh, our job as providers is to just give confidence. And like Jason also mentioned that, uh, you know, 
help the, guide the family through this, right? And be involved in task forces, kind of like uh, how Cynthia and Jason um, and others have been working to lead them through that. So hopefully more to come on that. Other questions? Sorry it went over, but you can't not know vaccines when you call ID. Are we good if there's no more questions? Don't say anything. Thank you for me. That was great. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Thank you very much, Bindia. Thank you, Bindia. Always love having you. Y'all take care. Be good. Call us if you need us, okay? We're there for you. Great. Thank you, Bindia. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We recorded, guys. We'll send that out for you. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Hey, podcasters, thanks for listening to Memphis MedCast. If you've got any ideas for future episodes of the podcast, uh, please send them over to info at mdmemphis.org. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Memphis MedCast, a podcast series from Memphis Medical Society. Subscribe to our podcast anywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts or mdmemphis.org.